0: Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. In this week's talk, cognitive neuroscientist Vincent Walsh chairs a discussion on sleep and circadian rhythms. He is joined by Deborah Skeen, Russell Foster and Stafford Lightman as they outline the mechanisms that govern our sleep-wake cycle and the interplay between our environment, hormones and health.
1: I'm doubly happy to um, be chairing this not just because it's scientifically interesting but because before I was asked to chair this I actually bought myself a ticket so I get my money back um, and I get to hear it all anyway. Um, the reason I would bought a ticket as a as a punter is that I think what we're going to hear tonight is about a subject which is special for a number of reasons. Um, one is that in terms of fundamental biology and psychology, it's one of the big open books, one of the big blank pages that we have in, in modern uh, psychology and, and biological sciences. The second is, uh, whereas they will discover really very interesting things in the Large Hadron Collider, that's not going to affect your everyday life, is it? You know, You're really not going to lose any sleep over it or change the way you cook. But what these people discover and what these people work on does interface with your everyday life in a way that I think many other areas of of biology and science simply do not. And I think sleep is, for that reason, and circadian rhythms are, for that reason, one of the most important subjects in in modern-day science. Just to give you, before I turn you over to the speakers, an indication of how important it is. We have some very accomplished people in this audience, very, very accomplished people. Uh, we have Pippi Stop, for example, one of the most important horn players in the world, last year made a landmark recording of Mozart's horn concertos. He's played the horn and blown down a pipe every day for 40 years, for hours and hours and hours. But. Every ten years or so, that adds up to his 10,000 hours. But he's actually four times as good at sleeping as he is at playing the horn (laughs) because every four years he gets through his 10,000 hours. That's how important sleep is, no matter what it is you do, what it is that drives your life, how important it is, evolution has decided to give over more time to your biological uh, mechanisms for sleep than anything else you might want to do. So sleep is one of the primary functions uh, that we've evolved to do. In fact, it might even be the point of life. Um, I'm going to hand you over to the speakers. What will happen uh, is, first of all, we'll hear from Stafford Lightman from the University of uh, um, uh, Bristol. Then we'll hear from Deborah Skeen from the University of Surrey. Then we'll hear from uh, Russell Foster from the University of Oxford. They're going to speak to you for 15 minutes each. So Stafford, if I can hand over to you.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm very much the warm-up artist because I'm not primarily a sleep researcher, but I will introduce you and move you into sleep. But what I would like to talk to you about today is about rhythms. Now, I think all of you are used to rhythms. You all have rhythms of one sort or another. And I'm just going to start by bringing you back to the brain because the brain is the bit is involved in sleep, it's involved in almost everything that you do. My particular research is on stress, and my particular interest is how stress causes disease. And there's lots of forms of stress from your external environment or from within yourself, but these all affect a little bit of the brain, right in the middle of the brain here, a part of the hypothalamus, which causes lots of changes in the way you behave, in the way your body performs. But very near to this area, which is your stress-responsive area, you've got another area. It happens to be called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, but it's a little clock. And you've got a little clock there in the middle of your brain which actually tells you where you are during your day. And it tells you when you need to go to sleep, and it tells you when you need to wake up. And this clock controls many, many things that your body does. Now, this body clock is a really powerful clock. So it lives here, and that, in fact, if you take this body clock out, and you put it in a dish, and you look at it in a dish, what happens is, all on its own, without anything else going on, every 12 hours, it turns on, it turns off, it turns on, and it turns off. So you've got this that's controlling your sleep cycle, it's controlling your energy, it's controlling all of the things that you do, is spontaneously going on in your head every single day. So where do I fit into this? Where's my interest? Well, this little body clock up here is very close to the part of the brain that controls your stress hormones. So there's a little pituitary gland here, and so it affects your pituitary gland which releases a hormone which is called ACTH which goes right around the body and then it alights on these two little glands here, your adrenal glands which live just above your kidneys and these produce the stress hormone, the stress hormone cortisol. Okay, so what would you expect happens to your hormones throughout the day? What would you expect actually happens? You wouldn't expect your hormone to be the same flat throughout the day because you know you've got a body clock and you know that you need your stress hormones when you're awake. You would expect it to go up before you wake up because it's an anticipatory hormone. It's a hormone that gets your body ready for the stress of waking up and everything you do in the day. You would expect it to go up in the night, to peak just as you wake up, stay up in the day and then come down. But actually, that isn't what happens. Although there's a day rhythm, What you've got is an almost hourly rhythm of peaks of hormone. And this is really interesting because why does your body want all these multiple oscillating levels of hormone over the 24 hours? So we wanted to know a little bit more about this. So you've got the pituitary gland. It makes a hormone called ACTH and it acts on the adrenal glands. The adrenal glands are really very strange because most of your hormone glands can store hormone so that when you stimulate the glands, they produce hormone. But actually, the adrenal gland cannot store hormone. It has to make it new all the time. So every time it has a message to turn on, it has to make cortisol. What that means is there is a delay between ACTH acting on your adrenal gland and the adrenal gland making cortisol. And so if I can give you an example of this, of what a delay means in a feed-forward feedback situation, it's like this. So you will recognise burns and smithers. And those of you who are a bit older will recognise that the type of showers you used to have, you used to go in and it was too cold, you turned the shower off and it went too hot, you turned it down and it was too cold. And basically what's happening is this. So burns finds the shower too cold, so he yells down to Smithers, do something about it, Smithers. So he does, so he turns it up. So he turns it up, but nothing happens because there's a delay before it comes through, so he turns up a bit more. And so as this happens, to begin with, it suddenly gets warm, just the right temperature, and then, ah, it gets too hot. (laughs) And he screams, ah, that's awful. So poor old Smithers gets screamed at, and he turns it down, and it goes down and he he tries to get it cooler, but it doesn't go cooler, so he turns it a bit more down, and it gets a bit cooler again, and then, of course, it goes from, ah, lovely, excellent Smithers, to being, ah, it's too cold. And this is what happens when you've got a delay in a message system. It's a mathematical necessity. Any system like this has to oscillate, and so what actually is happening uh, is that you get an oscillating system, and what's actually happening in the brain is this, is that you've got activity in your hypothalamus, which is activating the hormone t- goes to the pituitary. The hormone to your pituitary then goes round the bloodstream, and then it, when it gets to the adrenal gland, there is a delay. The adrenal gland, after a delay, makes the hormone cortisol, and when the level of cortisol goes up high enough, it quickly turns off the ACTH. So you've got what's called a feed forward and a feedback system with a delay in it. It has to oscillate. And that means your hormones have to oscillate. And that basically means that your body always, from the moment you're born, is seeing Oscillating levels of your hormone and it's adapted to it. So, what you have is you, for the whole of your life, you have pulses of cortisol being secreted by your adrenal glands. It causes pulses to go around the whole body. And amongst other things, it causes pulses of hormone to go to the brain. Does this matter? Well, yes, it does. We have quite a lot of patients who can't make their adrenal hormones, and we give them their hormone back, and we give it to them by mouth. When we give them by mouth, they get very flat levels of hormone throughout the whole day. And a lot of these patients just say, I haven't any energy, I, there's nothing I can do, I just got no enthusiasm for anything, I can't do anything. So what we've done is that we have looked at patients and we've given them back their hormone, either as a constant amount, so a flat amount of hormone throughout the whole day, or we've given them pulses of hormone. Then what we've done is we've put them in a scanner. And in the scanner, we've given them an emotional stimulus, which is basically looking at sad and unhappy faces, to see how their body emotionally responds, how their brain emotionally responds. So we're comparing people who've got nice pulses of cortisol to people who have flat levels of cortisol. The patients who are given flat levels of cortisol, when we give them an emotional stimulus, one of their amygdalas lights up just a little bit. And when we give the same people pulses of hormone, what we see is this. Both of the amygdalas light up very, very brightly. So the emotional brain, the part of the brain that responds to emotion, is much more activated when it sees an oscillating signal to when it sees a flat signal. And this is very important in our patients who actually don't show normal emotional responsiveness when we give them pills. And it's another way that we have to understand that the way we treat patients, the timing that we treat patients, is every bit as important as the actual Hormone that we actually give them to replace it. So I've said that you've got a body clock and that the body clock controls the daily rhythm of hormones. But one of the really interesting things, too, is that cortisol, this particular hormone, actually affects the body clock. So let me just take you through this very quickly. This is just shows you activity of a rat. And a normal rat gets very active at nighttime, and going up is how active it is. So it's very active. So this is three different days it's one, two, three days, and it gets very active at night, then it's not active in the daytime when it's asleep, it's active at night, it's inactive during the day, and it's active at night. Similar with activity, it has a daily rhythm of of body temperature, so when it's active, it's it's body temperature goes up, and then it goes down again, it goes up and down in a 24-hour cycle. When we give these rats a constant level of cortisol, so, we just give them a level of cortisol constant over the 24 hours. What happens is they leave, lose their activity profile. They no longer have a 24 hour cycle of activity. Their activity is the same throughout the whole of the 24 hours. And then, if we look at their temperature cycle, that has also gone. So, this major hormone, this stress hormone, which is controlled by your 24-hour clock, actually also controls the 24-hour clock. And when we give it in the wrong way, it can get rid of a lot of the activity of the 24-hour clock. So this is all about sleep. Does this have any relevance for sleep? Well, yes, it does. And in a normal night's sleep, what you get is you get very low levels of cortisol throughout the night. And then when you start waking in the morning, so when you're asleep, when you become more, wake up here, your levels of cortisol go up. What happens if your sleep is disturbed? So this is a subject who's got disturbed sleep because there was a very loud thunderstorm. You'll see that rather than having flat levels throughout the night, he's having these peaks of cortisol throughout the night. They don't normally happen at night, but during this thunderstorm, they were happening all all throughout the night. And then what happens to this was a staff member who had been supervising experiments and he was simply unable to sleep. And him, with his level, his leg like got pulses of cortisol actually going on throughout the whole of the night. So we know that actually high levels of these stress hormones can actually disturb your sleep. And while we also know that disturbed sleep can disturb your stress hormones. Does it matter as well? Well, this is just another example. What I showed you is that if you've got higher levels of hormones, you don't sleep so well. So what conditions do you have bad sleep in? Well, one of the classic ones is in ageing. But if you look at a normal person, so this is the average of young people, they have very low levels of cortisol at night, which then come up again in the morning. But more older people have much higher levels of cortisol at night. So these people who have much poorer sleep also have higher levels of cortisol so what do i conclude well i conclude that oscillations are absolutely vital for good health everything oscillates i mean really everything even atoms oscillate. everything in our existence that we know about oscillates so the stress hormone cortisol needs rhythm It needs a rhythm as an anticipatory hormone preparing you for waking up in the morning. It needs to go up before you wake up to prepare you for all the activities of the day. But it also needs hourly cycles to maintain your optimal responsiveness. If it's not oscillating up and down, you are not as responsive a person. Your reactivity, your emotional reactivity is not normal and in fact your metabolic activity isn't normal either. So it needs hourly cycles to maintain optimal responsiveness of the brain and other organs. There's also a bidirectional relationship between your cortisol, your stress hormone secretion, and sleep. So you have high levels of cortisol impair your sleep. We know that awakening is, li- is linked with increased cortisol secretion. And interestingly, if you tell somebody that they're going to wake up at a time in the morning, that in itself is enough for their cortisol secretion to go up before that time. So their expectation of waking up is actually enough to increase their cortisol and there's increased nocturnal cortisol secretion in many conditions associated with poor sleep, including ageing and depression. So that's really my introduction. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks very much. I can see uh, the attack of the oscillating hormones as a trilogy written by Stafford Lightman. Thank you very much. Deborah, can you take us on from that,
0: please? Great, well thank you and hello everybody. Um, I'm just going to uh, take on where Stafford left off and the hormone I want to talk to you about is called melatonin. And it's synthesized in the pineal gland which is a very small, it's the size of a pea in your brain. Uh, Descartes called it the seat of the soul and it is where melatonin is made. And it has a rhythm as well. And in a sense, it's the opposite of of cortisol. It peaks at night. We call it the darkness hormone. In every species that we've studied, melatonin occurs at night. And it's a hormone that prepares you for the things that your species does at night. So of course, in humans, we sleep. But animals like rodents, they're awake. So it's a hormone that is uh, related to darkness behavior. Um, And it is also driven by this biological clock that Stafford told you about. There it's sitting uh, just above this optic chiasm in this area called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And it's essentially hardwired to this biological clock. You can see the SCN here, and it's quite a circuitous route because it goes all the way down to uh, a part of your spine and then comes back up, and these nerves uh, enervate the pineal gland here. So what happens in the biological clock is directly informing what is happening in the pineal. And so, it's driving the rhythm of melatonin. Uh, And we use this rhythm of melatonin uh, to mark the the clock, because we can't see the clock uh, on our own. I can't tell you where your biological clock is in time, but I can measure this hormone, and by measuring it, and knowing what time, for example, the melatonin begins to rise, or what time the peak is, that tells me where your biological clock is in time. And so we use it as a marker of internal time and we can use it to diagnose circadian rhythm disorders. If we suspect that you may have a a disorder of the circadian system, we will measure melatonin to prove that. Um, and the reason we like melatonin is because it's not really affected by things like showering or eating um, or stress or sleep or meals. So when we measure it, it's not being confounded by other um, external factors. We do have to do some conditions to um, make sure we we uh, uh, get it right. And that is we have to Uh, sample in dim light conditions. And here are some measurements that we do in our lab down at Surrey. These are hourly blood samples. And you can see the melatonin rhythm's almost like a fingerprint because on two different nights, you can see that they're very similar patterns in these four people, except that when you look at the peak, um, here is 60 picograms, Uh, whereas here is only 25. So, we get different amounts of melatonin, but the profile is the same for each individual. We also can measure the metabolite of melatonin. This is made in the liver, and it's got a sulfatoxy group on it. And that means we can then measure it in the urine. And by measuring the melatonin metabolite in the urine, it means we can do studies in people's homes. So now we have the tools, and it means you can get at the clock and where the clock is in time uh, for diagnosis. Um, It also um, has helped us a lot when we want to look at, for example, what's the role of the eye and what's the role of light uh, in the circadian timing system. We know that light information is taken down this non-visual pathway to the clock. Um, and we've been able to study that and one of the ways of studying that is to study blind people. Uh, Now blind people um, of course have different diseases but they also have different amounts of visual loss and we measure that by working out whether they perceive light, whether they can see shadows, count fingers, or whether they have no conscious light perception, so they would be unaware that the lights are on. And we found that um, the degree of visual loss that we see in blind people relates to um, whether they have sleep problems or not. The more severe the visual loss, the more uh, high frequency of sleep problems. And we wanted to look at what is the clock like in, in these blind people. So here's a a blind person we studied for four weeks, and each time we studied them, the peak time of melatonin occurred here where it should, at night, about 3 o'clock in the morning. And that person had light perception, was blind but had some light perception. And then we can study people who have no eyes, they're bilaterally enucleated, and there you get a very different picture. We have melatonin being produced, It's peaking every time we measured it, but can you see that it peaks at a different time each time we sampled? Meaning that the clock is desynchronized from the light-dark environment because there are no eyes. Um, And when we study bilaterally enucleated people, You can see the peaks here, the the symbols here, show the peak time of melatonin. And every week of the study, the peak time changed. So we're having a desynchronized system, and that inferred or told us how important the light-dark cycle is, how important our regular 24-hour light-dark cycle is to synchronize the biological clock. And we know that it's ocular light. And why it's important even for blind people is here you see a sleep map. Here's a typical sleep diary. We ask our subject to tell us when they go to bed and when they wake up. And they also mark when they have some naps. You see SS here, Saturday and Sunday. So you're having these naps when our subject isn't working and sleeping. And you see that the Melatonin rhythm, peak showing in the red stars, is synchronized and entrained. All is well because the circadian system and the sleep are together. Now look at that. Very different. This subject is totally blind, no light perception. Look at the very poor sleep, short sleep, the free-running, desynchronized melatonin you see here, and where uh, the biological night is, you see how much more napping you get. And this slide is a sort of prototype of what blind people suffer from if they have no light perception. And it's known as non-24 hour sleep-wake disorder because it's not synchronized to the 24 hour. And it's characterized a cyclic disorder because sometimes when that person, when their melatonin is peaking at the right time, like four o'clock in the morning, do you see here the very good night's sleep and no napping during the day, but when the clock moves out into an abnormal place, peaking here during the day, then you see you get lots of naps during the day and very poor night sleep. And so when you have this mismatch between the the circadian system and your light-dark cycle, for example, when you travel across time zones or when you do night shift work, you get all the symptoms that I'm sure some of you have uh, felt. Um, You feel tired during the day, you... um, Of course, you reduce performance, you risk accidents, and then you can't sleep uh, when you want to at night. And we study shift workers in this way. We've studied people who work on the oil rigs in the North Sea. They have these uh, 14-day shifts, and here's a person on a day shift. So they sleep at night here, their melatonin is peaking at night, all is well. And then they go on to two weeks of night shift, And can you see, of course, they're working here during the night and they're sleeping here on the black bars during the day. But can you see how it takes some time, about six days, before they adapt to the new schedule? So while they're adapting, they're suffering from symptoms of jet lag. And another uh, sleep problem that involves the clock is what we call problems of sleep timing. Some people uh, can't go to bed at a normal time. They go to bed very late at night and wake up very uh, very late in the day. You might say, yes, all those adolescents, all those teenagers, that's it. That's exactly what they do for that period of time suffer from. And then Inversely, some people go to bed very early and wake up early. And that is more associated with as you get older, you tend to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier. So all of these things, um, uh, as well as some other possible um, disorders, uh, disorders of mood, um, depression, possibly uh, aging and Alzheimer's disease may involve clocks being dysfunctional uh, and affect sleep. And so we've spent some time trying to work out how we can try and treat these disorders. And the two uh, things that we currently uh, know can work are light, appropriately timed, and melatonin. That is, as a tablet, as a drug. Uh, taken because we know they can shift the timing of the clock. And the complicated part here is that both of these compounds can advance the timing of the clock or they can delay the timing of the clock. Um, And it depends on when you give it. Now if you give light before uh, four o'clock in the morning when your temperature is at the minimum you'll get a delay in the clim- timing of the clock. Whereas if you give light in the morning, you will get an advance. So it's very important to know when to give the light to do what you want to do with the clock. And melatonin is the same. If you give melatonin about now, before the natural rise in melatonin. It will advance the clock, and if I give you melatonin in the morning, it will delay. Uh, and the trick here is that they're almost 12 hours apart, lighten melatonin. So if you want to use both of these to treat circadian rhythm disorders, you shouldn't be giving them at the same time. You must take your melatonin when you're not uh, getting a lot of light. So with wearing sunglasses, perhaps. Um, And that's sort of the full list of all the circadian rhythm disorders you can get. And knowing what goes wrong here means you can appropriately time your light and melatonin to correct that problem. And that's what researchers have done, and that's what we've done too. So thank you for your attention.
1: Thank you very much, Deborah. Russell, you've got 15 minutes and 49 seconds to tell us everything you would like about Many thanks interview.
3: indeed. What I thought I'd do in the next 15 minutes and, was it 49 seconds? Um, was to pull some of the themes that, that Stafford and, and Deborah have talked about, and then drill in in some detail about the mechanisms whereby the uh, eye detects uh, light. So let's kick off with, with a framework of, of thinking about sleep. So the first point I'd like to make, and it's been touched on by my colleagues, that a profound amount of our time is spent asleep. Across the entire lifespan, 36% of our entire lives will be spent asleep. It's just absolutely extraordinary. And and to put that into some sort of context, is anybody here who's celebrating or just about to celebrate your 60th wedding anniversary? Anybody? (laughs) No? no? Well, when you do, be, be aware that 21 and a half of those years, <laughs> you'll have actually been asleep. Um, so, so so, when you cut the cake, really it's not 60 that should be on it, but 38 and a half years. Um, but the key point, of course, is that the quality of the sleep that you get will to a large extent dictate the quality of the the, the waking day because Sleep is not a down state. So much is going on. In fact, some parts of the brain are more active during the sleep state than the wake state. And really important, biology is going on when we sleep. So memory consolidation, the ability with all this information coming in to actually consolidate it. That's absolutely critical. Sleep is critical for that. And it's not just the retention of facts, it's also the manipulation of information. Um, Jan Born in in Germany has been able to show that a night of sleep can enormously enhance our capability of coming up with novel solutions to complex problems. Now these are kind of intuitive stuff, but now we have the scientific evidence to back it up. Toxin clearance. There's some recent stuff suggesting that beta amyloid, which has been associated with uh, a buildup in the brain with dementia, is actually cleared during sleep. Uh, tissue repair. The brain is regulating uh, the release of growth hormone. Growth growth hormone is is very important in in tissue repair, and growth hormone is released during the first half of the night while we're asleep. So much tissue so much tissue repair is going on there. The rebuilding of metabolic pathways that have been burnt up, as it were, during the waking state are rebuilt at night and indeed energy replacement. So it's a really, really fundamental and important part of our biology. And no great surprise that the generation of the sleep-wake cycle involves essentially every brain neurotransmitter and multiple brain structures. You can think of the sleep-wake cycle and the, sleep, the generation of sleep as being a network property of the brain. It's a global brain event, and that's really important for some of the stuff that we're going to discuss in a moment. Now. In addition to this sort of set of networks that we've discussed, as I say, every neurotransmitter, multiple brain structures, you've got a range of important drivers and modulators. We've already heard from Stafford about stress. And, of course, societal demands, as indicated here by the alarm clock, um, can have a huge impact upon the sleep-wake cycle. In a sense, society can impose um, a sleep-wake cycle. But if that sleep-wake cycle is out of sync with the biological desire to sleep, then you can activate the stress axis and cause real problems. And we'll touch on that in a moment. So uniquely in our species, we have essentially a societal drive uh, that distorts sleep. The second driver and modulator is perhaps the most intuitive part about sleep, which is the longer you've been awake, the greater the need for sleep, the greater the buildup of sleep pressure. And a number of different substances have been associated with the the development of tiredness. So from the moment you wake in the morning, then the sleep pressure builds up and up and up and up and up. Now, you don't fall asleep, usually, Sometimes there's a mid-afternoon dip, and we may want to discuss that later, because of the other thing we've heard about already, which is the biological clock. The biological clock is essentially saying, now is the appropriate time to be awake, and now is the appropriate time to be asleep. And so what happens is the clock drives a sleep window. So as the sleep window opens up, the sleep pressure kicks in, and then you go to sleep. And of course, if the clock and the sleep pressure are out of sync, you're in problems. The clock, as we've heard, is centered around the suprachiasmatic nuclei, the SCN, and what's also extraordinary, you can take one of those individual cells out, Stafford showed you, of a slice ticking away in the dish. Actually, that property of the clock exists within a single cell. So, you can take one of those cells out, stick it in a dish, and you see 24 hour oscillations. And so, what that tells you, of course, is that the generation of these 24 hour circadian rhythms is not essentially cell cell interaction, some sort of circuit property, but in fact, it's a subcellular molecular oscillation. And we now know. Quite a bit about that molecular feedback loop. And in fact, tiny changes in those genes and their proteins that make the molecular clock have been associated with morningness and eveningness. So, morningness and eveningness has a sort of a, a bit of a genetic basis as well as a developmental basis. Okay. In addition to clock cells here, Essentially, every cell in the body has its own clock. So what's happening is that this master clock in the base of the brain is sending a signal out to regulate the rhythmic activity of billions and billions of individual cellular oscillators scattered throughout the, uh, the, the organ systems of the body. So you have a, a fantastic circadian network. And then, of course, this internal time signal is of absolutely uh, no use whatsoever unless... It's course, it's set to the external world, and as Deborah was saying, the light-dark cycle perceived by the eye is the most important regulator of this internal molecular clockwork. The eye is also doing something else. It's sending projections to a whole range of structures within the brain, some of which have been associated with alertness. So... When I look around the room now and I see lots of people falling asleep, um, I know it's nothing to do with me at all. It's the low levels of light. If I were to increase the levels of light, I would increase levels of alertness. And that is something that can have a big effect upon the sleep-wake cycle. Many people, before they go to bed, stand in the most brightly lit room in the house, you know, cleaning their teeth. Now, that will increase levels of alertness and actually can delay sleep onset at night. Okay, the point I wanted to make with all of this stuff is that sleep is immensely complicated, or the sleep-wake cycle is immensely complicated. And we see huge potential for disruption. If, for example, you're a shift worker, you're, you're, you're misaligning activity with the biological need for sleep, and so you can activate the stress axis. If you're drinking a lot of coffee, the caffeine in coffee can block the rise of the sleep pressure. So so that's how uh, caffeine is interacting. And of course, it can delay sleep immediately. If you have an abnormal light-dark cycle, as Deborah was explaining, within shift workers and jet lag, this can all be horribly disrupted. And what we see, of course, is disruption of sleep, largely driven perhaps by the By the stress axis, you get real problems in overall health. One thing we know about increased levels of stress is it suppresses the immune system. And it may be that suppression of the immune system, which is associated with higher rates of breast cancer and colorectal cancer, which have been studies in night shift nurses, higher rates of infection. Also, activation of the stress axis will increase cardiovascular problems and indeed metabolic abnormalities, such as diabetes, too. In addition to overall health disruption, you have the ability of the brain to process information, cognitive health, the laying down of memory, the coming up with new ideas. And finally, as we'll touch on very very briefly, our emotional and mental health. Sleep disruption is intimately associated with mental illness, for example. And finally, of course, all of these are connected together. So you have this incredible framework of thinking about sleep within the uh, broader context of our biology and our overall health. In fact, in severe psychiatric illness, such as schizophrenia uh, and bipolar, there is immense sleep disruption. I mean, really profound sleep disruption. As you see in neurodegenerative diseases, as Deborah touched upon in ocular disease, shift working, ageing, and stroke and. A trauma. So why do you always find sleep disruption associated with these important diseases? Well, part of the explanation is that sleep and circadian rhythm disruption may arise because the neural circuits that derive normal, let's say, psychiatric behavior are also shared by the sleep systems. So there are common and overlapping pathways. So for example, we've shown that if you take a gene that's been linked to human schizophrenia and you have a mutated form of that gene in a mouse, the mouse sleep-wake patterns start to collapse. So genes that were never associated with the clock and the sleep systems initially, when mutated, have a big effect upon the uh, clock systems. So there's that shared pathways. That's not the whole explanation, of course, because in addition to the overlapping pathways and mechanisms, the psychiatric illness via stress Social isolation, and indeed the medication, can impact upon the sleep-wake cycle. And indeed the disrupted sleep via poor health, poor cognitive health, and again stress, can feed back and exacerbate um, these pathologies here. One thing that's turning out to be really interesting is that in, again, psychiatric illness, if you can partially stabilise the sleep-wake disruption in patients with schizophrenia, you can actually not only improve the overall health consequences in these individuals, but reduce in one experiment levels of delusional paranoia by 50%. So there's a very, very intimate uh, relationship between uh, these pathways here. Okay. What I want to talk about now in the last few moments is really to strip away this complex network and then talk exclusively on the relationship between the eye and the master clock within the brain. Now, if you think about it, we're asking the eye to perform two fundamentally different things. The familiar function of the eye is as an image detector, either uh, uh, black and white, an object against its background, or indeed using color vision. And what the eye is doing is grabbing light in a fraction of a second, forgetting it's seen it, and then is using that information to uh, build up an image of the world. But that's not the sort of information the clock wants. The clock wants an overall impression of the amount of brightness in the environment at dawn and dusk so that it can regulate internal time. And these are very, very different sensory tasks. And and, and way back in the early 90s, we began to ask the question, well, how the hell can the eye do this? How can the understood function of the eye as an image detector also allow reliable brightness detection? And so we took another look at the eye. And just to orientate you, what you see here is the eye. And we've taken a little section here, which is the retina. And you see these are the visual cells, the rods and the cones, the rods providing us with our black and white vision, and the cones our color vision. And then there's various layers. These layers here are associated with the first processing of the visual image. And then these are the ganglion cells, and then they collect this information and fire this information into the brain via the optic nerve. And we started to study mice with... Different ocular diseases. But let me give you some background first. Here we have our mouse. Here we have a light-dark cycle. Here we have a normal retina. And you see it's a nocturnal animal, so it's active, broadly speaking, when it's dark, and it's asleep when it's light. Now, how do we know it's the eye? Well, if we cover up the eyes, this ability to entrain the circadian system is gone and the clock will drift through time. And the mouse clock is a bit shorter than 24 hours, so it gets up a bit earlier and earlier and earlier and runs in its its running wheel. Now, we used a whole bunch of different sorts of mutants, whereby the rods and cones had been affected, and the animal was visually blind. And what was extraordinary is that you can lose large numbers of these rods and cones, and um, you can still regulate the clock. And this really puzzled us. And even back in the early 90s, we were thinking, well, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something else in the eye. And when we proposed that, uh, there was huge opposition. The argument was, we've been studying the eye for 150 years. Are you seriously telling us we've missed an entire class of light sensor? And what's more, your experiments aren't that good. Because actually, you haven't wiped out all of these cells. There are still a few left. And that's probably all you need to regulate the clock. So finally, we used the mouse model whereby all of the rods and cones had been eliminated. These animals showed no visual responses whatsoever. They had lost all of those cells. And so the question is, without any vision, without any rods and cones, what would happen to the animal's ability to regulate its clock? And to our intense pleasure, uh, we saw that they could regulate with perfectly normal sensitivity. And then the argument was, well, okay, well, you've, you've, you've removed the rods and cones, but something else outside the eye has taken over. So what we, course, had to do was put the old black glasses on again, and the animal free ran. So very clearly, there must be another light sensor within the eye. And so what the hell is it? If it's not the rods and cones, what have you got left? And we now know, that it's these ganglion cells. About one in every hundred of the ganglion cells is directly light-sensitive, these photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. And they are exquisitely sensitive to blue light. So... When you're looking at this screen now, your photosensitive retinal ganglia cells are getting really quite excited. Um, And it's this signal that is primarily responsible for regulating the clock. And there are, as Deborah said, major clinical implications for this. We, like Deborah, have been looking at visually blind individuals. Visually blind individuals, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've lost your ability to regulate the clock. So, visual blindness does not necessarily mean clock blindness. But sleep and 24-hour rhythms abnormalities are largely ignored in clinical ophthalmology. So, I've been working with my colleagues in the Eye Hospital in Oxford and around the country, and we've been looking at a whole range of eye diseases at an exquisite level of detail. Um, and I won't show you the specific results, but I will just show you the broad conclusions. So there are two classes of patients. There are patients with visual cell loss, like our rodless, coneless mice, but they've still got the photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Now, normally what's happening is that the clinician will say, well, I'm sorry, you're blind, there's nothing more I can do with you, that's it. What they should be saying is expose, if if these receptors are still here, and it's fairly easy to see if they're still active, then these individuals need to expose their eyes to sufficient daytime light to regulate their sleep-wake cycle. It gets worse, actually. Because of an ignorance about these cells, there's been a tendency to say, well, your eyes are no use to you. You can't see to look after your eyes. They're going to be a source of infection. It's so much simpler if we just, well, just pop them out, um, because then it'll be so much simpler. And, of course, what unwittingly the clinician might have done is, of course, they've already lost their sense of space, but then, of course, they've lost their sense of time. They'll drift through time for the rest of their lives um, and experience essentially unremitting jet lag. And the second group of patients, of course, they'll have their rods and cones, but as in severe glaucoma, the inner retina is gone, so the rods and cones can't talk to the brain and indeed those photosensitive ganglion cells have been lost. But as Deborah said, all is not lost. One can in these individuals consolidate sleep weight to some extent with melatonin and there's a whole raft of new drugs on the horizon. So the last slide and the last point I want to make is that clinical ophthalmology must appreciate that the eye provides us with both our sense of space and our sense of time, and this is a great example of how a fundamental question-driven bit of research, how the hell does the eye regulate internal time and the sleep-wake cycle, has led to the discovery of a completely new photoreceptor system within the eye and is now changing our understanding of the nature of the blindness, and indeed in the clinical realm, how you might treat blindness and the advice you give to patients suffering severe ocular trauma. And with that, I'll finish, thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Before we move on to general uh, uh, questions, uh, I, I, I'd like to uh, um, ask a few of you, uh, ask you a few few questions. Stafford, that, um, on on the cortisol, one of the things about uh, having poor sleep, having a dysregulated rhythm, having an attack of hormones, is that you 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 feel. Um, You feel as if you're not up to par. You feel as if your memory is bad. You feel as if your concentration is bad. So what's the relationship between the cortisol changes and our behavioural experience?
2: Well, there's very good evidence in in animals. So Becky Conway Campbell has done some studies in which she gives cortisol constantly rather than allowing it to have its normal rhythm. And in those animals, they can't remember things. Rats, If you put something new in a rat's cage, uh, it will go and explore it because it's new and it's interested. If, you, if that rat has been on constant levels of cortisol, it won't remember whether that thing's been in its cage before or not. It just can't remember things. So actually, it's really important for your memory. And if you actually look at the level of the way individual nerve cells talk to each other, it's called synaptic plasticity, the way one nerve cell talks to the next. Uh, if you add cortisol, it changes the way one cell responds to a message from the other. So the actual biochemical mechanism of memory is also changed by cortisol. And, and
1: is there an interaction as, as I get older and my memory gets worse, is there an interaction between that and, and the effects of, of cortisol? Is there a double whammy?
2: There is probably a double whammy. Certainly when you get older, your, your rhythms of cortisol get flatter. And so that is one one risk factor. But so these things are combined. So your your whole biological rhythms are changing. Plus your levels of cortisol are flatter.
1: And you you, you talked about uh, night owls and early birds. When does that become predictive? So if I'm a a, a nine year old um, early bird and then I become a, um, a an adolescent night owl, when do we? Is there anything you can predict from the adolescent or the childhood sleep patterns that would? Predicts whether i'm going to be a, a night owl for the rest of my life or an early bird and can we change these patterns
0: uh all all good questions i mean people have looked right across the ages and indeed you get this very late type and you uh, it tends to turn around about 21 23 years old uh, men and women are slightly different but then you be, start becoming more early type and then that's finally drifts down. But what we have noticed when we've studied older people who are not working anymore and their children may have left home so in a retired situation often the older people then revert back to what we would call their almost innate original chronotype because then you can do what you want. So I think the the, the, the problem with all of this is the external social pressures of having to go to work having children can can make you a a certain chronotype for a certain period of time, and then you may revert back to being what you feel innately. So one of the questions we do ask people is, you know, without any constraints, without any work, without any family, what do you think you are? Are you a morning type or an evening type or an intermediate? (laughs) And that probably is best reflecting your genetic uh, circadian clock. Um,
1: and status. following Russell's scientific advice that the best way to get through a marriage is sleep through as much of it as possible. You were informed that at the Royal Institute, it's a scientific piece <laughs> of advice. I think the interpretation
3: <laughs> is, kind, is kind of interesting. I mean, yeah. Is it, is it, is it that you, because you don't see your partner much? Yeah. Uh, but of course, I mean, there's this evidence which suggests that morning types and evening types, the longest surviving relationships, are that's, between morning that, types and evening types. That's yeah. the question. Um, and that's the, the, the question. cynic question. might say it's because they don't meet each yeah. other. I would say that it's because if you can accommodate your, your
1: partner's sleeping
3: habits, all the other crap that life throws at you is relatively mild.
1: Um. I am so tempted to do a poll of couples here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I won't. I'm going to throw it open to you. because so there are some roving microphones. Where are, they? are the people with the microphones? They're, they are here. Yeah, if we can have the roving microphones.
0: Um. I'm, I'm getting towards, uh,
3: towards 80 actually, not that far off. And I'm beginning to suffer from numerous small ills. And I think I'm picking up, if my cognitive facilities are still working well enough, I'm picking up that a lot of these things are due to the degenerating sleep patterns. And what can I do about it, if anything? Thank you. The the first thing which I think is so interesting is that, of course, what you describe is very common, sleep disruption in in the elderly. Um, And what's so tragic is that we understand it very, very poorly um we done some mouse studies and we've shown that the light signal getting to the clock is diminished in older mice for some for some reason we don't understand why those photosensitive retinal ganglion cells are, are providing a, a, a much weaker signal so mm-hmm. one thing that's been shown to be effective at least in the nursing home by a colleague Alsvan Summeron has to uh hugely increase the amount of light in the, the day areas of the nursing home and then have darkness in the bedroom. So that very robust light-dark cycle seemed to have a very good effect in consolidating sleep. And indeed he studied a subpopulation of elderly who were showing mild dementia. And in those individuals who showed improved uh, sleep-wake as a result of the improved light-dark cycle, they showed an impro- improvement in cognition by 10%. So, so and I know Deborah w- w- will have lots of other advice as well, but one of the key things is that you are, are exposed to a robust light-dark cycle. If you're not getting outside, then, you know, have your breakfast by, by the window. And it's really important to appreciate that the, that the amount of light in which we live is, is we live in dim-dark caves. Shortly after dawn, Environmental light is some 50 to 100 times brighter than average indoor light conditions. By noon, it's 500 to 1,000 times brighter. So you know, a robust exposure to bright light, particularly in the morning, has been shown to uh, consolidate the clock. But there are other things that I, my, my colleagues want to, may want to talk about.
0: Only that we, we've studied, we've, we've, we've been into the care homes in South England. We know the lighting in, in care homes is very dim. And and because some people can't get outside, which if you can, that's that's what uh, you, the advice would be. We've, we've put more lighting into some of the communal areas in care homes and we're seeing good, good, the, the, good yeah. these results. These
1: kinds of pieces of advice are all, all, all very well and scientifically based. But when somebody asks a question like that, um, how long can they expect to wait before they will see changes in their sleep behavior and their feelings of, of well-being these clocks how long do they take to to reset should I will, will one day of good sleep hygiene help me to sleep or do I need to get a week of good sleep hygiene Um Because it's a clock and it needs resetting. So how long does it... Well,
0: the clock resetting can happen within 24 hours. But this issue isn't necessarily a clock resetting issue. It's about trying to increase the amplitude of the oscillation. Because that has dropped as we've got older, as as Stafford showed with the cortisol. And so that appears to take longer. So, you know, we're recommending, uh, you know, go outside, just make... Try and walk every day while you can. Uh,
1: A question here, and then could we get a microphone upstairs, please? There is one, one. okay, Um, but we'll take this question first and then we'll go upstairs. Uh, There is a variation in the length of the
0: day and night with the seasons in this country and further north the variation is even bigger, so how does that affect the biological clock of the people who live in, in those places? Uh, well we have the ability to adapt to that. that that's exactly why light can, uh, is able to phase advance and phase delay. So we, uh, the clock. so we're able to adapt to changing light photo periods as, as we say. Um, uh, and, and animals may make good use of this um, and uh, by, for example, being seasonal breeders so we know that um, sheep, uh, for example, will, will have a certain uh, reproductive status in winter so that we ensured that they will have lambs in the spring and their newborn will have lots of grass to eat and things like that. So um, uh, biology is, is very uh, uh, adapted to um, uh, seasonal breeding. Um, humans, we've probably still got that ability to, to adapt to seasons. But when you think of it, we don't actually live in these seasons very much anymore because we have artificial light, we have central heating, uh, and so we're not really living the sort of seasonal life that we may have done before electricity and, um, and, and, and artificial lighting. But yes, we can, we can adapt to it. So I we,
3: just, just add, yeah. I mean, one, one thing about the far north, karl Stocken, <laughs> who's done some lovely work on Arctic reindeer, um, because of course there's constant light and constant temperature for, uh, constant light and, and, and constant dark for about two months uh, uh, of the year. And what he's shown is that those Arctic reindeer simply turn off their clocks. There's no signal, there's no, uh, and, and there's no change. Therefore, there's almost no adaptive value, he would argue, of having a clock. I mean, the key thing under those conditions, particularly in the winter, is that you feed whenever the weather conditions permit, and that's going to be independent of what the, what the, what the light environment is going to be. So I think there's, there's some wonderful biological flexibility. Most of the time, a clock is incredibly valuable. But um, where it's not, in a constant condition, you may turn the clock off. Question here.
1: Um, We've heard a lot about the role of
2: the SCN in controlling our biological clock. Um,
1: But I've also heard that we have biological clocks in other tissues and cells around the body. So I was wondering how important those other clocks are in health and how they fit in with this clock in the brain.
3: Uh, I mean, I think it's a really good question. For years, we thought the master clock simply imposed forced a 24-hour pattern on the rest of our biology. And then Uli Schibler uh, from Switzerland discovered that individual cells could tick away perfectly well. And so, as I said, you've got this circadian network. Now, most of the time, of course, it's all beautifully synchronized. The eye hits the The master clock, the SCN, the SCN sends out some sort of signal, and you get this beautiful rhythmic coordination. Now, the reason jet lag is so bad is not that you're simply five hours shifted from London to New York. It's the fact that all of that sort of oscillating network becomes uncoupled, and you have a sort of a complete smear. So the brain, the gut, the liver are all slightly out of sync. And that's why it feels so grim. And in fact, in many diseases, it's thought that internal desynchrony um, an uncoupling of the master pacemaker with the peripheral clocks might actually be a, a, a problem. Now, there can be good reasons for uncoupling the peripheral clocks with the master clock. And some experiments were done in rats, whereby they were only fed for two hours in the middle of the day when they'd normally be asleep. And what happened is that the master clock carried on, uh, synchronized to the light-dark cycle, but the liver and the gut moved to the feeding at that particular time. Uh, I mean, it was a pragmatic response to, you know that's when the f- food availability. So most of the time, of course, it's beautifully synchronized, um, but under conditions of disease, jet lag, um, or other uh, extraordinary events in the environment, they can be uncoupled. Probably short uncoupling, isn't the problem, long term un- uncoupling will lead ultimately to a, essentially a breakdown of normal physiology.
1: We have to draw the, the meeting to a close, I'm, I'm really, really very sorry, we could obviously go on. Could we please thank very much uh, Russell Foster, Deborah Skeen and Stafford Lightman.
0: Thanks for listening. In our next episode, neurosurgeon and best-selling author Henry Marsh and paediatric oncologist Jim Olson discuss a new technique which could potentially transform brain surgery.